Welcome back to the program. Hollywood is like sports or politics. Each generation gives us stars and personalities that both reflect the culture and the tenor of the times, but they also transcend it in ways that pave the way for the next generation. By the 1970s, Hollywood had seen a lot of agents, names you've seldom heard of. They were men like Lou Wasserman, Myron Selznick, Swifty Lazar, and Abe Lasfogel, who shaped the lives and careers of the celebrities that we had come to love. And while by the 70s women were emerging in the more cloistered world of New York literary agents, one woman would put her mark on Hollywood in a way that came to define an era. One that combined the glitz and glamour of the early Hollywood of the 30s and 40s with the informality and anti-establishment fervor of the 70s. That woman was Sue Mangers. She's the subject of a new biography by my guest, Brian Kilo. Brian is the author of previous biographies of Pauline Kael and Ethel Merman. And it is my pleasure to welcome Brian back to this program to talk about his new book, Can I Go Now? The Life of Sue Mangers, Hollywood's First Super Agent. Brian, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me back. Great Seems time. like we were just talking about Pauline Kael. Indeed. <laughs> well, we've gone from the 80s to the 70s. We're kind of working our way back in some yeah, way. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I want to talk about the 70s because there is this sense that, that what Mangers represented was in many ways this, this attempt to go back to or at least to recapture the glamour of Hollywood, the 30s and 40s glamour of stars and celebrities and personalities, but she did it in a way that was reflective of kind of late 60s, 70s culture, which was bombastic and anti-establishment and colorful as she was. That's right. That's a very that's a very nice succinct way to put it. I do think she did have a great uh, fondness and uh, for and connection with the old Hollywood glamour because she'd grown up with it. She'd grown up being a fan uh, of people like Ingrid Bergman and Susan Hayward and 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 these you know the great great film stars of that era. And I think that. Uh, I always thought, as I was working on this book, that Sue sort of thought that life was supposed to look like a Ross Hunter movie from the 1950s <laughs> or 60s. You know, that was her idea. Everything was supposed to be perfect and and beautifully appointed and all that. But as you correctly say, that was filtered through uh, the the 60s sensibility that that she had. I mean, she was a pot smoker. Uh, and a, a big pot smoker. She was a she was a bad girl. You know, she she liked a lot of sex. She uh, she slept with a lot of guys. She was very sexually assertive. Um, she was uh, a very very assertive and aggressive woman who did not, however, really identify herself as a feminist in any formal sense or or dogmatic sense at all. Uh, even though she crashed through the ceiling, as everyone is fond of pointing out in the agency business for, for women, there really weren't any prominent women agents in the movie business before she came along. Right. There were literary agents who were women, but that was a different, a different industry altogether. Um, so she did, she was kind of a, an interesting meeting of times in a way, you know, the, the old Hollywood and the new Hollywood coming together. And I think she made it work for her very well. And if she had any major failing, putting the personality stuff aside, which we'll come back and talk about, but from a business perspective, it seems to me that her greatest feeling was that she failing was that she never took the long view, that she approached Hollywood in some ways like 
people today approach the music business, it is for the moment, it is transitory. And this sense of, of really long-term looking at people's careers was not something she did very well. No, no, it wasn't, actually. I think it was her greatest failing as a businesswoman. And this is something I didn't know until I, I got into the research on the book. She didn't have any particular interest in developing a young, unknown talent. Now, the thing that I find odd about this is that she had a, a very, very keen eye mm -hmm. for talent. But she had no interest at all in in developing them. She wanted the stars brought to her ready-made. She wanted that part of her job made easier. And I think this does tie into her psychology in a very interesting way, because I think that she was obsessed with the A-list. She was obsessed with being part of that, with every part of her life somehow reflecting A-list status. And to take you know, a, a young actor that she might have seen in a black box production somewhere in West L.A. and and try to sell him to a, a movie producer, a movie studio, was somehow a betrayal of all that. She she just didn't want to go near it. And of course, many of her colleagues operated in the uh, in the opposite way with great success. I mean, they did take a chance on unknowns. They did uh, work very hard to build them a step at a time. And she saw this, but she didn't seem to learn from it somehow. The other part of it that she was so good at, which which played into this failing, and, and you talk about it in the book, and, and I guess you quote Barry Diller as talking about this, is her sense of negative selling, that she was so good at putting <laughs> down other people. Yeah. That's right. I did ask Barry Diller that question. I said, what was it like to be across a negotiating table from her? And he said she was the greatest negative seller I ever saw. And I said, what do you mean by that? And he said, if you had a client, that you, or, or you had a star, rather, uh, that you were, you were going to put in a, a picture, she could come to you and demolish that person step by step by step in favor of the client that she wanted to get the part. And he said, she did it very well. He said, I never saw anyone who was better at it. So, uh, she had, I mean, she had a quick mind and a sharp tongue. And she did have a, a, a real talent, as many of the people I interviewed for the book told me, uh, Barbara Streisand for one and Jacqueline Bissett for another. She had a great capacity to make you question your own taste and your own judgment. And she could, really, she could really maneuver people very, very well in that way. And I think it did become quite complicated if you were her client. You know, I think there was oftentimes people said, well, you know, is this woman on my side or isn't she? I mean, she's supposed to be my agent, but here she is criticizing me and telling me I look terrible and I'm getting older and I have to do this and I have to do that or I'll never, I'll never get another job. She was kind of like a very tough, scrutinizing Jewish mother. Very much like her own mother, in right. fact, and, which, and, is, which is something I try to show in the book, that she repeated that pattern. She saw the world really in very, I mean, both her own world and the broader world in very Manichaean terms. It was black or white, winners or losers. There was very little nuance. Completely. Completely. No, she was either with you or she was against you. There was, there was, there was absolutely very, very little nuance. Uh, and yet I found it fascinating 
that she was in therapy a great deal of the time because she does not strike me as the kind of person who would have had the slightest interest in it. Quite the contrary, she strikes me as the kind of person who would have been very dismissive of the idea of, of psychotherapy. Uh, and I would give anything to know what the <laughs> sessions were like. I really would, you know. But uh, obviously, that's that's quite confidential. <laughs> but, in, but I wonder how much of that was because being in therapy was part of of the the sort of zeitgeist of the time, and had more to do with that and less to do with her own individual needs. Well, that's entirely possible, and you know we shouldn't forget that that therapy does appeal to a lot of narcissistic personalities. Oh, right. I mean, I mean, I, I mean, I'm a, I'm a huge believer in therapy, but there is a certain kind of of narcissist who is drawn to it because it's just another chance to talk about himself or herself. And uh, and Sue was a narcissist. There's no question about it. She was a very unusual kind of narcissist, I think, because she spent so much of her life in service to other people. Talk about that, because that is sort of the interesting dialectic, I suppose, in all of this, that that she was a representative, that she was an agent, as we've talked about, but she wanted to be as big a personality as her clients in many ways. Very much so. Very much so. Yeah. I mean, I think that she she absolutely had the utmost respect for the most talented ones on her client list. Barbara Streisand, I do think she thought was unquestionably the great talent of the time, as I think she was. Um, and she revered Barbara Streisand's talent and the talent of several of the other people that she represented. So I don't think she saw herself as their equal in that respect uh, at all. Um, she knew that she didn't have that kind of artistic quality. She had tried to become an actress when she was younger and it hadn't lasted very long or, or gotten very far. She gave it up rather quickly, but she did want to be on the A-team, on the A-list, and surrounded by those people all the time. And it did become uh, a sort of pathology with her. She really could not stand to be around anyone who wasn't rich or famous or celebrated. Where in her history, in her upbringing, in her background, did that come from? Well, she had a very, very tough upbringing. Um, she came to the U.S. in 1938, German refugee. She came with her parents. She was an only child, and they fled the Nazis. They arrived in New York in 1938, and they wound up very quickly uh, in up, far upstate New York, Utica, to be exact, which um, then, as, as now, was <laughs> not exactly the center of the universe. Uh, it was, a, I think, it was, you know, it was rather, actually, it was a rather bustling Rust Belt town at the time. I mean, there was a lot of industry there that, that isn't there any longer. But um, it was not glamorous, let me put it that way. And she grew up in this very ordinary place with these very ordinary people who were just, I mean, they were just poor German Jewish, Jewish refugees trying to get on, trying to learn the language and make a living and, and make a life for themselves in this new place, as, as so many of their, their countrymen had done. And she had a very, very contentious relationship with her mother from the beginning. 
And then in 1946, her father, who was uh, a very, very serious gambler and was often in debt, wound up in bad debt, tried to get out of it, was not able to do so in the, the time he wanted to, and killed himself in a Times Square hotel room. Died of barbiturate poisoning. And so a mother and daughter are left on their own. They moved to the Bronx where the mother gets a job as a bookkeeper. And they just carried on. And now they were alone together. And the father, who had been sort of a buffer between them, was no longer there. And they fought like crazy. The mother eventually remarried to a man that Sue did not much care for. And they they had a very, very tough relationship. But the mother was a, a super critical person. She she picked at her daughter for everything. She was very, very concerned, I think, that Sue was going to embarrass her or cast shame on her every time she left the house. And so this kind of very, very combative relationship was set up early on. And I think she just dreamed of getting away from this kind of life. It was a, it was a real kind of Jacqueline Suzanne story in a way. She just dreamed of, of glamour and, and beauty and, and power and money. And, and in a rather remarkably short time, she managed to get it. You know, she did, I mean, she put in her, her journeyman years as a secretary and uh, uh, to, to other agents and learned the business from that, that point of view. Uh, but by, by 1963, about, she had become a full-fledged agent with a small theatrical agency in New York. I mean, it was really kind of remarkable, given that she hadn't started that many years earlier. And it was very tough for women to get into those positions at the time. But this fellow um, took a chance on her, who had the small agency. His name was Tom Corman. Okay. And he wound up representing a lot of very, very well-known people. Um, but he took a chance on her and, and made her a full-fledged agent. And she started going around and hustling like crazy and getting some very, very big clients to sign with the agency. One of the people that she got was Julie Harris, who at the time was one of the leading stage actresses on Broadway. And she kind of, she had good taste, Sue. She had, she had a very highly elevated taste, I think. And she knew good when she saw it. She, she saw Geraldine Page in Sweet Bird of Youth in New York and just fell in love with her and and went to performance after performance because she couldn't get enough. Um, so she started to build a very, very impressive client list that included Anthony Perkins and Anthony Newley and Julie Harris and uh, a number of other people. One of the things that's so interesting is that she had, on the one hand, this really good taste in terms of, of material, in terms of people, in terms of talent, and she had a great eye for it, as you talked about before. And yet later on, she would develop this sense of shamelessness that was almost, despite her mother, that she would be embarrassing in ways that, that other people were, might be horrified by, but she would do it to call attention to herself. Well, and it worked. It was her <laughs> shtick. I mean, in, in the book, I really do try to show you that um, she almost operated like, like a, a, a nightclub comic or something. It really was her shtick. She loved to say things that would throw people off, that would shock people. Because you have to remember, especially women at this time, did not say some of the things in public that she said. 
she also she loved to be uh, uh, very very provocative in in the comments she would make about race and about 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 black people about gay people about her own people about Jewish people and that became so prevalent that Billy Wilder, who had become a frequent dinner guest at her parties in Los Angeles, stopped going because he thought she was the epitome of the self-hating Jew. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about that shtick that she did and, and, and what it represented and, and how people responded to it. It was very effective in so many ways. Oh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, I think that, that we know, anybody who knows anything about Hollywood, either then or now, knows that there has always been a certain level of the road to success, if you're an executive on the business end of things, is to agree with everyone. You, you, you don't necessarily do yourself any favors if you go out on a limb and, and really... Uh, uh, come out with an outrageous and very, very strong opinion about something. You know, there's, a, there's a lot of yesing in Hollywood. I mean, Pauline Kael uh, had that wonderful line because she worked briefly on the production side of things in Los Angeles in the, in the late 70s and early 80s. And she had that wonderful line about Hollywood is the only place where you can die of encouragement. Right. Because nobody really wants to say no to you. You know, because that, that, I mean, this was the way it was at the time. The, that, that was somehow bad form. And so you're, you're strung along, and these projects are drawn out forever and ever and ever and never get anywhere. Uh, but I think that Sue really exploded all that. She would go into meetings, and somebody would say, well, I just signed, uh, I just signed Faye Dunaway. And she'd say, ah. Oh, who cares? She's nothing. She has no talent. You know, if you want to impress me, try something better than that. I mean, this was not done very much. Uh, there was, she really exploded all the, the politeness <laughs> of the business in a big way. And she, um, she could be very, very dismissive of, of a lot of big people if she didn't think they really had the stuff. Uh, Faye Dunaway, in fact, was a client of hers briefly and sue just never got her she never thought there was anything there and uh they didn't work together very long uh one of the great coups uh of that period was that sue got her the leading female role in chinatown by roman polanski through a series of trickeries (laughs) which is which is entailed in the book uh but she she really was uh, she was not politic. She was not afraid. I mean, she could she could seduce and flatter with the best of them, but if it came right down to it, she she could just let you have it about what she thought about uh, about your the the person you were putting in the picture. And uh, there's an agent named Michael Black who was very helpful to me in writing the book, and he. He used to talk about listening to her on the telephone when she would be going over the contract details. And she'd say, well, I think that my star should have first position billing. Certainly not that dried up has been that you saw fit to sign as leading lady, you know. <laughs> and, 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 and then, you know, but she did it in a funny, kind of ballsy, witty way. And people, people would laugh. 
you know, at her outrageousness. And it just became part of her own personal power. How did the traditional men in the agency business respond to her? Oh, the, the older guard, I think, didn't quite know what to make of her, a lot of them. However, the people who really got her going in California, who, who, who sent her out to, to L.A. from New York, were, it should be remembered, Freddie Fields and David Beagle, mm-hmm. who were, who were uh, top executives at, at uh, CMA at the time. And CMA later in the 1970s became ICM. And Freddie and David were really the ones who put her on the fast track, took her out of New York, sent her to Los Angeles, where she became very, very famous very quickly for being someone who did business through hostessing, in a way. She would give these wonderful parties at her home where business was done at the dinner table. And uh, she would see a particular actress next to a particular director, and maybe by the end of the evening, the actress had a part in the director's new picture. So, um, but I think a lot of the older men who had been there for a long time really didn't know what to make of her. One of them I interviewed uh, for the book, well, a couple of them I interviewed for the book, but, but one in particular referred to her as a little pisher. I mean, he was, he was still, all these years later, very, very dismissive of her. Mm-hmm. What, did, what did Beagleman and Fields see in her? Imagination, absolute, uh, great wit, keen wit, sharp, uh, sharp instincts, and I think absolute ruthlessness. She would stop at nothing to get a client a job. And she did it at her outrageousness. You know, there are pushy people. And I'm sure you've dealt with them <laughs> frequently in your job. I certainly have. They're pushy people who are just pushy. They're annoying. They don't have any charm. Sue, Sue was pushy, but she was charming and funny about it. And, and she won a lot of people over very quickly. And I think that was really that was really the key. And I think maybe you know that that was part of her femininity coming into play. Um, I think that 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 was maybe something that at that point she understood as a woman that the men didn't understand. It's in, it's interesting that she changed the business in so many ways, and and certainly at, both during her time and and after her, there were a lot of Sue Manger's wannabes, but that way of dealing in Hollywood didn't last all that long. No, it didn't. It didn't. Um, by the mid nineteen eighties, certainly, that was changing dramatically. The multinationals were taking over the studios like crazy and a much more corporate mentality was settling in. And all of a sudden, the MBAs were taking over. I mean, Pauline Kael, in her Hollywood venture in 1979-80, certainly found this to be the case and wrote about it famously um, in um, uh, an essay called The Numbers, I think mm-hmm. it was called, um, uh, that she wrote for The New Yorker after she came back to, to Manhattan after this abortive stay in Hollywood. Um, there are actually a lot of parallels I found between Sue Mengers and Pauline Kael. It was very interesting. Uh, both women who were prominent during this same period. 
but but yes, yeah, Sue ran afoul of these people as well, and she she thought that they knew nothing about movies, the actual art and craft of making movies, and I think she was right. Um, she didn't have respect for them. Whatever else she did or didn't have, she did have a great love of the motion picture art form and motion pictures as entertainment. She really loved the movies. And I think as an agent, I think that's one of the greatest things you can have going for you is that kind of passion that she had. Um, but she, you know, she, she, when she was confronted with some of these people who clearly really didn't know, they might be great number crunchers and they might have the, the MBA from Harvard, but they really didn't, didn't have any uh, substantial movie, movie love or movie fever, as, as Pauline used to say, call it. Um, I think she just thought they were ridiculous. <laughs> you know, and I think she treated them accordingly. A lot of these people were on the way up, and then in a very short time, she was on the way down, so that didn't, that didn't turn out so well for her. And finally, her later years, after she left the business, essentially, were not uh, terribly good years, it seems. No, they weren't. They weren't. Um, she, she always battled her weight, and after she retired far too early, in my opinion, she retired for the first time in 1986. She left ICM rather abruptly. She said it just wasn't fun anymore. She was happily married to a Belgian film director and writer named Jean-Claude Tremont, who didn't work a great deal of the time, but she, she loved him very much. And they were going to travel and sort of live the retired life, but Sue wasn't very good at living the retired life because really the movie industry was all she cared about. So she's retired and yes, they're going to Italy to stay with Gore Vidal. They're going to Paris where they had a home as well for stretches of time. But most of the time she's sitting in her house in Los Angeles observing the industry without being part of it anymore. And it was very hard for her. So in 1988, she made an ill-advised comeback at William Morris and just couldn't get anything off the ground at all. It was it was that she tried to get a lot of her former clients to resign with her, and only one of them, Christopher Walken, would. And uh, it didn't last very long. And then she retired for good. And I think that's when the real bitterness set in. And that that stayed with her, I think, to the end of her life, along with growing health problems. I mean, she had heart problems. She had cancer at one point because she smoked like a fiend, both pot and cigarettes. She was overweight. She was always going away to the Canyon Ranch or somewhere like that to try to lose weight. And she would stay in her room eating candy bars instead. And uh, uh, so she had a lot of health issues as well. And then her husband died in 1996, and she, she really never recovered from that. Brian Kello, the book is Can I Go Now? The Life of Sue Mangers, Hollywood's First Super Agent. Brian, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Well, thank you very much. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. We'll, we'll take a break. I'll be right back.